this weekend, January 22nd and 23rd, 2022, Asset Horizon will start its 1,000 Plateaus reading group with the Plateau Introduction Rhizome. There's still a chance to join. All you have to do is join us on Patreon. Subscribers at all levels will be able to participate. And even if you can't participate, you'll still be able to view the recordings. There will be two sessions. All the information you need will be linked in the show notes below, or you can just visit our Patreon account. Now might be a good time to subscribe to Asset Horizon on Patreon or support us in any other way, such as purchasing merch from our merch store or finding our blogs or following us on social media where you can share episodes with friends or others who might be interested. Whatever you decide to do, we thank you for supporting us. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome to Asset Horizon, the theory podcast. Today we ask, is it possible to liberate work? Is it possible to rescue work from the imperatives of productivity in capitalist societies or under real existing socialism? Today we look back at the work of Tony Negri and Felix Guattari, in which they attempt to answer this question while also attempting to formulate a new meaning of the term communism in view of what they perceive as the excesses of real existing socialism of their era. We will unpack a few of the arguments in an effort to rediscover something useful in this unusual but optimistic text. On the show today we have Matt Will and Adam. So, Matt, would you like to begin by offering a short introduction or a summary to the text? Uh, sure. So, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I want to flag up a few interesting things about this. So, firstly, that it was written by Felix Gotari and Tony Negri. When Negri was arrested in Italy under some quite severe charges related to his activities as a communist uh, leader and intellectual, uh, it was Gotari who um, essentially helped him seek asylum in, in, in France at the time. They considered themselves political allies, and they worked together on a number of political movements. Deleuze was perhaps less involved, but they certainly knew each other at the time. This book was written also um, in 1985, so uh, in, in the French, so five years after the publication in French of Thousand Plateaus by Guattari and Deleuze. So one of the reasons why it's quite interesting is that a number of uh, more recent academics and scholars probably tended to elide some of the political implications of the Thousand Plateaus in favor of some of the possibly some of the earlier chapters, which are less obviously political. And when you read this text written only five years later by Batari, um, it's clear where the politics stands. I mean, the, the name itself should give that away, but the content itself backs that up. So it's interesting for that reason. The other reason it's interesting, I think, is that a number of the ideas developed here, as Negri and Guattari Sort of collaboratively work together to put this to, to produce a kind of coherent text authored by two by two individuals. A number of the ideas here, I think, are early forms of what you later find in Hart and Negri's Empire. One example being that in this book they invoke the concept of um, integrated world capitalism. They say in a later um, postscript written, I think, for the English version, if I'm correct, that they hadn't fully developed this idea in the text. But again, there's two interesting things to point out there. One, which is specifically on, on that concept, which is that it has to do with the idea of real subsumption. And we can go into this later, maybe. Um, it comes up a lot in Negri's work. Um, but it's a concept you find in Marx, in some the unpublished chapter to Capital Volume 1. And then the, the more interesting thing, I think, is that it, it, it's, a, it's a slightly more 
early rough draft version of the concept of empire that Negri develops in, in uh, the book of that name with Michael Hart in 2000, so 15 years after this book. So the context is also that um, writing in 1980, um, there's simultaneously the, um, the difficult position that Negri's in, in relation to Italian authorities. But the reason why he's in that position in the first place is essentially the um, Italian uh, uprisings, uh, protests, riots, etc. Um, of 1977, which was a, it, it sort of followed a lot of the autonomous playbook. It was um, relatively spontaneous, worker organized, and explicitly rejected the politics of representation, reformism, and also of the kind of socialism that the Soviet Union in particular um, sought to represent. So this book written by um, uh, Negri and by Guattari is interesting, I think, for a whole range of reasons. There's a historical context um, of what it says about the Italian situation at that time or around that time, um, what it says about uh, Deleuze and Guattari's work as we read it back after this, um, and also looking forward a little bit, what it says about um, uh, Negri's work later with with Hart. Um, I think that's most of it, but if anyone else wants to add anything else to that explanation, then please do. I think it's probably best to just kind of explicitly say what Negri was, was being charged with and why he was being persecuted. He was... Um, Essentially, charged by guilt by association for being a um, allegedly being an intellectual sort of political wing of the, the Red Brigade in Italy, and that they had um, later on in the seventies, around seventy eight, seventy nine, committed some sort of terrorist acts against uh, the Christian Democrats, and I think assassinated one of the, the higher tier leaders. And um, you can see particularly the Italian context in this text by talking about particularly how Negri critiques the idea of terrorism or terroristic adventurism or terroristic action as a political force. And this could be a good way of developing one of the main notions of you know, how Negri and Guattari articulate this idea of communism as particularly oriented around world peace. And not, not in a particularly hippiest sense, but in deactivating the machines of war, interrupting the, sort of the way that global war and global cold war and global threats of nuclear terror keep the entire system going. And he is very much against his adventurous notion of terrorism, even going back to the arguably the Trotskyist line of terrorism as a political force. And ultimately, I think you can sort of see that as correct, given how after the revelations of places like Propaganda Due, these Operation Gladio, these uh, US-backed fascist forces meant to be doing false flag operations and sort of stifling various terrorist activities in what the Italians were then called you know, the, the years of lead in the 70s, shows how this sort of communism is formative on Negri's own work. And Negri is partially writing this from prison. It end, Well, no, he is writing it from prison. It ends with uh, him signing off from a prison in Rome. So I think this, this projection of the Italian context, and also particularly the Communist Party of Italy, the old communist parties that are still holding out for a chance, even in 68 in, in France, that, you know, we, we want to reject this mass movement sort of politics and still keep ourselves on top, make sure we represent the workers and eventually can bring something into the parliamentary and the sort of traditional state political table and how that's informing his work here. Because there are, it's by looking at the, the very elementary parts of this, of this context, you can see where Grattari and Negri are trying to diverge from it, particularly from the traditional, let's say, Leninist models of the Italian and French communist parties and also some of the ways in which at least at the time, it's seen that other, other left entities as well were doing that sort of action in terms of the terroristic model of, of the Red Brigades. Not to say that Leninist parties were doing this, this terrorism at all, but 
it was two paths that were very present at the time. Yeah, I think it's important to to understand that this is also being written in the face of kind of a political disintegration that took place after 1977 of these movements, right? So they're, they're also having to respond to um, what happened when uh, the autonomous movement and importantly, like certain figures in what we consider the sort of BR became a political wing. What happened with this politicization? And for Negri and for Guattari, it seems to have been a failure. And for that reason, they have to grapple with this. So, And, and this is obviously going to be a, a theme in a lot of the literature coming out of the autonomous tradition, whether directly or not. So this is also going to be a theme in, say, the work of Marcello Tari or Giorgio Gambin. Uh, tikkun. For context, it's it's as important to understand this when it comes to to political theory in this intellectual milieu as it is to understand 1968. Uh, I really do think that that an understanding of of 77 is commensurate to to that of and necessary in comparison to that of, of 68. Yeah, and just to bring forth some of the uh, rally counties of this, even in its own time. This text is really a rejection of some of the conclusions that other members of, sort of the uh, the Operismo, the autonomous movement, such as Scronti, would later have in the early 2000s, which is that communism, or most specifically the workers' movement, was defeated by democracy, not by anything else. And you can see in this text that, no, that Qatari and Negri absolutely reject that. This will go on to inform Hart and Negri later. But the idea, this is this text is fully an affirmation of democracy, even against the very democratic structures in which communism or actually existing socialism seems to, us, to have ossified. And I think it, it, it misses, I mean, the postscript he does in 1990 obviously looks back at this and says it's, it is somewhat of a naive text in the sense of, I mean, many things. For example, it, he says quite clearly it's a very pre-Chernobyl text in terms of how dangerous the ecological implications of nuclear power are. But overall, this this text is like very pro-democratic. It's, it's, if anything, a bit more radically democratic than most of the ways in which this collapse of communism, socialism were being responded to. And so with that, we'll just break right into the core argument, which is the purpose of this text is to rescue communism from its own disrepute. And so the last 60 years of Socialism or communism in the USSR was marked by, for them, an authoritarianism, disproportionate development of its territories, and not unlike the way that capitalist countries developed in some respect. And the question of work is the question that lingers. It had long been conceived that the development of work as an institution and strategy for social development has failed. The whole world has become a workhouse, buttressing the burgeoning neoliberal regime at this time. And through work, no one can escape the exigencies of capital. But what they're trying to do here is say how we could perhaps recapture work or liberate work. And one of the leverage points, as they see it, is our ability to manipulate the subjective dimension, class consciousness. Our society has become shot through with the imperative towards total complicity under capitalism to the point of demanding things like self-surveillance and stemming the question of capital's moral legitimacy overall. You know, at this time, like like you were saying, we're getting a sort of precursor to Hart and Negri's empire. We're seeing the ways in which capital Capital, the ways in which capital, both from the standpoint of production and consumption, is infusing every aspect of our life. This is pre-iPhone, pre-internet, and everything. Yeah. Sorry, I, I had to jump in that because um, 
these are really crucial to understand not only um, uh, Negri's work, but also the autonomous work in general. So the idea of the um, this sort of collective capacity to revolutionize the idea of what work is, um, is central to autonom- autonomous thought. It comes um, in particular from, like, from a concept you find in Marx in the Grundrisse called the general intellect. And it's a generalized and collective um, sort of social capacity or social knowledge um, about the manipulation of means and uh, usage of means of production. You don't really find it, at least as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong, very much in Capital, at least Volume 1, I'm familiar with. But it's, 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 a, it's a quite important part of the Grundrisse. And many of the Italian autonomists felt it was very important to study the, the Grundrisse in addition to Capital. Yeah, I think this is where the, the text starts to really look like it's from 1985, but then also at the same time look like it's relying on an understanding of like the social and capital from like 1930, right? Like the, the, this is where I think an understanding of, oh, it is now that we start to see capital seep into the social, seep into civil society. My question is, is this at all the, the kinds of the kind of argumentation that we saw from Deleuze and Guattari only five years earlier? I, I, I think this marks like a distinct break from a lot of uh, that depiction of the social and that depiction of subjectivation. So I'm wondering, like, maybe, Craig, do you do you have something to say about this idea that oh, it's through the Fordist economy that we start to see this kind of transversal, this, this ability to traverse these distinct territorialities. Because I wonder if that's, if that's, if they're not playing catch up <laughs> with capitalism a little bit here. I, I mean, that's a good question because I get a sense from the text that they see Fordism as preparing the ground for the kind of dynamics that they see now as marking the capitalism of, of their day. It, it's hard for me to read a text like this and just not look back and read the contemporary through it, especially seeing how far gone we are. The kind of notes that I was I was taking during reading this are coming out of another semi-textbook, Dividuum by Gerald Ronig, where the implications, uh, I would say the negative implications or the um, externalities of society becoming the way that it is becoming, at least in terms of the way that Negri and Gattari announce it, are fully fleshed out in this this other book, Dividuum. You know, the idea that, for example, like just being online and perceiving ourselves as, you know, having downtime or having free time and being online, we are in a, a state of interpenetrated productivity and consumption 24-7. And we have this concept of prosumption, for example. But here we are, we might just think we're vibing and smoking or whatever, but we're out there, we're putting out information that generates ad revenues and so forth. And I mean, that's just one example. I'm not sure what they have in mind in terms of the sorts of technologies and technical machines that are motivating this change. I mean, we have the the advent of the personal computer around this time, and it's being used in offices and so forth. But like, even after 1980, we're, we're just so far gone by 1995 that, you know, like I said, it's really hard to estimate or, you know, look back from my vantage point and say, oh, this, this is the position that they're thinking from. I don't know. What do you think, Will? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think... <sighs> This period marks a kind of, the computer has a kind of weight to it whenever it manifests in the text. And I'm always skeptical of this idea that like it's only through the computer age that we reach a sort of governmentality through data. I, I think if we're, we're good Foucauldians, I, I think we understand that like that the intensification of data analytics is as much a byproduct of like 19th century 
uh, 19th century liberalism and the management of like everything from grain production to the implementation of like workhouse policies to uh, health campaigns uh, in the 1830s. I, I, I wonder, you know, if when we read this text, if Guattari and Negri are still trying to kind of toil with a social technology that's been present for quite a long time in its kind of uh, intense and obvious presence through through data analytics that are computerized? Well, I, I think one of the answers, at least one of the lines that can be connected between what's happening here in this, this, this other book, Dividuum, is the self-subjugating tendencies of the, the, the sort of privatization or hyper-individualization or hyper-dividualization of pastoral power, the constant assessment of oneself. Like, here, take this short survey online. Tell us how we did. I worked in a, a university setting through an extended university once where not only did we have to do quarterly self-evaluations, but we basically had to write a one to three page paper every year evaluating our own teaching techniques. And I know these things just got thrown in the trash some years, right? And so the ultimate upshot of it was this generation of a hyper-localized pastoral power. To your point, yes, pastoral power has existed since the 19th century, but I think what we're seeing is the, the rounding out or the fullest implications of that with the development of technology. But Matt, you had something. Yeah, so I think um, at least a big part of the answer here is Marx's distinction between real and formal subsumption. Um, which Negri in particular uh, is, is sort of known for, for trying to develop. This is what I mentioned, I think, at the start of my introduction. I didn't go into much detail. Negri provides a sort of definition of, of what this means for, for Marx. Um, again, this is from supposedly, it's as Negri calls it, sort of the, the sixth and unpublished chapter of Capital Volume 1. And he defines it in two sentences, really straightforward. He says, Real subsumption is defined in contrast to formal subsumption of labor. Formal subsumption occurs when capitalists take command of labor processes that originate outside of or prior to the capital relation via the imposition of a wage. And real subsumption, the labor process is internally reorganized to meet the dictates of capital. So I wanted to say, I think, two things about that. Firstly, it would be a mistake to see these as um, discrete points where any particular business or um, area of um, industry or the economy or society is either formally subsumed or really subsumed. It's more about tendencies towards each gradients and differentials and so on, right? That can help us get around a, a little bit of the uh, nuance there, I think. Could you give us sort of a, like strong examples of that? I, I mean, I know you're saying that they're not highly differentiated in, 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 some, mm. in some cases, but what might be good examples of either one. Yeah, so Negri actually does provide an example in the next sentence. Um, and he says, but um, an example of these processes would be weaving by hand, which comes to be labor performed for a wage, formal subsumption, and which then comes to be performed by a machine, real subsumption. Real subsumption is this sense, is, in this sense, is a process or technique that occurs at different points throughout the history of capitalism. Um, and Negri's idea also, as well as this, is that what you tend to find under the sort of post-Fordist model of the economy is a generalized real subsumption of society, such that it isn't simply within the factory that this process takes place, but that the entire society becomes a kind of social factory. The entire thing is reorganized along lines um, that meet the dictates of capital. And importantly for Negri, that includes subjectivity as well. 
if workers are required to be socialized in a particular way in order to fit the needs of capital, that will probably occur. Not to say that there won't be resistances and, and, and the rest of it, but um, that's, that's the idea here. So subjectivity plays a role f- from the start, I think, um, at, least, at least under real subsumption. Sorry, it does. But that's, I think, part of the answer to how he's, how he's thinking about this question. Subjectivity is already embedded in the transformation from formal to real subsumption. And the, w- what we find in a post-fallist economy is exactly this process, but generalized even beyond the workplace and factory. I'm concerned about this idea that of these territorialities, the factory and then the the, the social. I mean, I'm, I'm butchering this and that's a vulgar term to use here, but I'm worried about this territoriality and the temporality of the Fordist economy. Because I I think most liberal theorists of, of the 18th and 19th century already believe that the latter isn't, po- like that the former isn't possible without the latter, right? Like whether it's, you know, Ferguson on, on, you know, the, uh, the English and French civil society, or even Adam Smith, the functionality of the economic person is predicated on a promotion and production and an entire social milieu that is already conducive to it. So I'm wondering, is there a way for us to define these terms in Negri so that we're not left with this false distinction between these two things, because it's clear Negri sees a connection, right, in his in his use of uh, Grundrisse and in his reworking of both Marx and Foucault and the importance of subjectivity. But I'm wondering how necessary is it for us to pin this on the Fordist economy? I think the idea is that it's not simply that alterations of forms of power exercise power over subjectivity um, at one point only when, within, let's say, the factory, and then at a certain point becomes generalized. Um, now, this is me reading into it a little bit, but um, I suspect part of what it's meant to explain is a range of phenomena that most Marxist thinkers over the 20th century also pointed to, which is that there is some kind of gradual but discernible alteration in society, in subjectivity, in the ways in which we understand work and family and the rest of it. Some of them call it uh, perhaps alienation or reification or what have you. A number of thinkers have different words to describe this thing. And I suspect that what Negri's trying to get at is that we can actually understand this in relation to the development of capitalism rather than as an isolated um, event. Not that, I mean, certainly these other things didn't think it was an isolated event either. Um, But he's trying to connect it up under a more cohesive, I suppose, uh, schema. Maybe to bring it back just to the the core question of what we're talking about here in terms of liberation of work, I just wanted to read out this quote here. So, work itself defaults on its promise of developing the relations between humanity and a material environment. Now, everyone works furiously to evade eviction, yet only hastening their own expulsion from the mechanical process that work has become. And if you just do a bit of a close reading on this, Work, I mean, we were talking about this with Jason Reed uh, a couple of weeks back, the idea of the function of money now is no longer to, you no longer have this sort of baseline of this capital, you know, you have this guaranteed job, more or less, you know, you clock in, you clock out, you work X amount of days a week till you do, essentially you could retire or you die or it kills you. No, if, if you die, it does kill you. That's what the system does. But, but now it is really to evade fear, to evade eviction. And yet only hastening their own expulsion, which means that you, you sort of work yourself to death, trying to avoid the death it's constantly threatening you with. And I wanted to ask just how this liberation of work functions in terms of 
how they multiply or how they present us with a, a field of struggle which, contrary to earlier analyses, was always already multiplied, particularly in terms of they talk about distinguishing the what was then the east-west axis with the north-south axis in terms of the patterns in which we can form global solidarity now in a global capitalism. I think it is very tempting to think of this as a kind of um, a description of Foucault's boomerang, you know, the idea that the colonial forms of oppression end up coming back to the imperial core insofar as it's a globalized production. But I think maybe you could even read this stronger than that. Well, I think you should in, in a manner, for example, our conversation with Varia Dean a while back in that it was always bigger than this. The, the forest economy always had to rely on the very stuff that got capital started in the first place, which was the extraction, which is the extraction of labor and value from the bodies enslaved in the very materials that got to the factories in the first place. Yet where did where did the, where did the proletariat of, uh, of, of Victorian England get their materials from? And I think maybe expanding that it's 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 not a decent it's a decentralization of the worker, but not in any sense of a decentralization of class or decentralization of material analysis of production. But it's really opening it up in terms of this is this is global. But I think if you could go further than Negri and Guattari and say, no, it's always been global. Maybe the one thing that I could add to it, at least on the point of subjectivity, is one of the important challenges to affirming subjectivity as a sort of contested field. I, I think comes through in in the idea, there's a point at which, this is almost like capitalist realism in a sense, at which we think we are unable to, or maybe the impulse to refuse certain kinds of work, certain kinds of measurement, certain injunctions from institutions, when the refusal of those things becomes something that's not even on the table for consideration, I would consider that a kind of advance in terms of the subjectivation apparatus. And this is one of the things that they want to recover, especially in their concept of the de-individualized individual. One of the ways that we can think about this is through, through Nietzsche's concept of the individual, where there's a certain kind of individuality that Nietzsche critiques, he calls it the collective individual, and we can keep that term for my purposes here, but I would caution that it doesn't map directly onto Nietzsche's concept. In fact, I would want to use it to talk about the ways in which our individuality gets kind of chopped up and disposed into apparatuses or investments that are directly tied to capital. And the concept of the individual that he's railing against is the divided individual, that we divide ourselves, that we give part of ourselves up to affirm some other aspect of ourselves, a really cut and dried way to, to express it, sexual repression. Think about the people, for example, who morally reimburse themselves from abstaining from abhorrent sexual practices. In a similar vein, think about how our conscious or unconscious affirmation of capitalist ideology represses our own powers of refusal and stems that orgiastic tendency to rise up against the particular kinds of oppression that are experienced under capitalism. I think this dynamic happens at a much more profuse and pervasive structural level, you know, with respect to the way that we treat work in our society. What is it at our place of work that we are willing to refuse? Where are we willing to set a new kind of standard? And it didn't matter if you lived under capitalist hegemony or the real existing socialism of the time. There were certain manners of expression, certain kinds of refusals that were just simply disallowed. And this meant that certain singularities or certain collective assemblages of enunciation 
or certain individual expressions were simply tamped down. And so you can be an individual under capitalist society, for example, but only under certain terms if you become a de-individualized individual. So just a quick Spinoza's point there. I think you can also bring Spinoza in to the same degree. And you know, an individual is a is a sort of it can be a collective thing. It is the individuality is the potential to enact a causal power. And in this sense, you could read, especially as someone who's so influenced by Spinoza as, as Tony Negri is. A de-individualized individual is an atomized one. It is one that is only a mere individual, really. And this is where you get the idea of collaboration as a force of work. And this is where you get solidarity coming into it as well, because you know, refusing to be a mere individual, a de-individualized individual, is to refuse to have your causal power restricted only to yourself. It's a refusal to you know, abandon cooperation and solidarity. Because if you join up with these other people, you can become this individual mass that wants to exert a causal power. If one person gets fired unfairly, you can shut down the entire factory if you get together. If you refuse to remain as a mere individual, you join this this union of selves enacting a causal power. You you become a demos exercising its kratia. You become a kind of a union of of selves, let's say, a, a, a... a union of, of, of egos in acting in collective self-interest for the interests of all of them as a cooperative body. We've been talking already a little bit about um, work, the organization of work, liberation from it. We haven't, I don't think, yet got to the meat of this, which is that... So, for Negri at least, but I think clearly for Guatabi as well, the refusal of work is a uh, vital part um, of any communist practice they're willing to uh, endorse. And there's, there's specific reasons for that. And it might look like a contradiction if you know anything about like Hart and Negri's later work, right? Um, but it's not, I don't think. And I'm going to try and unpick this. And Will's going to stare me down as I try this. So the reason why the refusal of work is necessary is that it's not liberation to work, it's liberation from work. Right? And that's, a, <laughs> that's key for them. Um, Marx explains in detail very early on in Capital Volume 1 exactly why um, increases in productivity of other means of production don't lead to a shorter workday or a shorter work week even. Structurally and for the very logic of capital which it runs, it, it just it won't happen. Right? And so Marx considers the struggle for a shorter uh, workday, shorter work week, he considers that absolutely vital. And I think he calls it a prerequisite for freedom. It seems to me, at least in this text, that Gotabi and Negri are following a similar line of thought. It's not fully developed, I don't think. But the idea is something like this. On the one hand, refusal of work becomes vital for that exact reason. Because what it does is, is seek to challenge the idea that the gains in productivity need to be reinvested in ever higher levels of production. And I think that feeds into their later reflections on this work when they, th- when they talk about uh, ecology um, and implicitly climate change, I think. The idea that there is another way of thinking about what we can do with the, the results of the productive process, call it, right? On the other hand, if there's going to be a, a productive process, and maybe that's an open question I'm, I'm assuming, then the question is, um, how ought that to be managed? And their answer is along um, radically democratic lines, basically. And in particular, the I think the idea is that the engagement in the refusal of work as a political action in which um, individuals and groups engage in, engage in should, could, or at least can um, produce a new understanding or a, a new attitude towards how we think about all of this. 
So the question is, what do we do with these machines which make the stuff which we basically require to live at this stage? Um, and they have ideas about this, although a little bit unclear, I think, um, in this book about really what they, they add up to. But yes, I, I think it, it's partly about refusal of work. And one of the reasons for that is how it's how it changes people's understanding of what, what, what the place of work is, what work is, I suppose. And then the question arises, well, what can we do with what we have? Marcuse um, in One Dimensional Man talks about how for all of the technological development, you know, that these supposedly developed civilized capitalists, liberal nations have been able to create, what did it create? Nuclear bombs, more effective ways to kill each other and destroy our planet. And I think that's one of the sort of basic communist impulses here is, uh, or at least, well, again, I'm assuming that that's a sort of basic communist impulse. It's certainly a sort of Marxist impulse, I think, is to say, what is it? What is it that we could be doing with all this stuff, but we're not? Basically, I think that's the idea here. So that's a partial defense, but I'm having to be a little bit careful about that one. There's one thing to point out too, which which kind of appears as an antinomy in this text, which is, you know, Gattari and Negri acknowledge that the activity of work is a kind of sensuous activity through which ties of solidarity are built. The caveat being is if we are unable to refuse work, certain kinds of work or what have you within the context of the creation of that solidarity, then, you know, not only do we fail to affirm any uh, emergent singularities, uh, but also it then leads to, us falling victim to the kinds of axioms that build nuclear bombs in the end. Right. And so this is why, I mean, from, from a, a practical perspective, from the perspective of raising class consciousness, for example, uh, maybe at this point we can all agree that the role of refusal, um, not only of work, but also forms of subjectivity, ideas that we have about ourselves and our world, if those cannot take shape in some sort of palpable and meaningful sort of way, there's not going to be an advance to any notion of communism that comes after Gattari and Negri through this trajectory. Absolutely. I mean, a, sub a subject has to refuse. Refusal is a subjective as well as a material act, and subjectivity and materiality are not by any means opposed. An example I was thinking of, just thinking about the north-south axis and liberation of work through the refusal of work, I was thinking about the example of the, uh, the early 70s of these, uh, these, these Scottish workers who essentially refused to work of fixing up and repairing the planes that were going to be used by Pinochet's government. Mm, that's you can right. see by a simple refusal of work, which is made possible somewhat by global capitalism becoming not, not simply prevalent, because it always has been, but explicit to the subjects, not only in itself, but also for itself, to put it in the, the Hegelian terms, which are always correct to use. It was, it was that which allowed them to have solidarity with this singular event, which was the Chilean coup, this concrete happening in the this concrete event happening in the world, and they could simply use a network of integrated world capitalism. Essentially, at this time, I think it was just mainly just four guys saying no. Hyper-specialized workers could say no. Refusing that work brings the North and South axis completely into question. Yeah, I think though that like that when we talk about refusal, these nodes are still ones at the point of interception, in act of absolute destitution must take place. You know, the, the, this isn't necessarily some sort of immediate formation of something that 
produces a productive activity that makes one worthy of being a global citizen in the more contemporary negriest sense. To me, I still see this, at least this example, which I, I don't know much <laughs> about, but this example of, of, of intercepting this process of production and breaking it down just at its weakest node, which is the, the necessity for like a hyper-specific act of labor. I, I, I still see this as, as, as an act of emptying out. I wonder where, where this lines up with their question of complete socialization. And understanding the totality of global citizenship as it relates to productivity. For me, that's still an act of, of, of destitution. They agree. Negri says this in a letter appended at the end of this, written a few years later after this book. Destruction of the existing order of things is the prerequisite for our um, capacity to imagine something else. Um, destruction basically has to come first. He says this explicitly in that letter, so I think he actually agrees with that. At least at this stage, maybe maybe by empire or something, maybe that few changes. But yeah, I mean, like the, the concept of refusal of work changes in Hart and Negri in the two thousands, mm-hmm. and I don't. While I think it's important, I don't necessarily think it's important for this text and understanding their conception of the multitude. And I'm wondering now if we can talk about the importance and the manifestation of plurality here, and what is new in this text, in this period in the history of, of communist thought, of the affirmation of plurality. And maybe, Matt, you can guide me through this. One way to, one way to phrase this is to see this as a kind of, at least partly, and, and at least on Negri's terms, as a prelude to empire written 15 years later. Because this idea of multitude, which Negri draws from, his, from, from Spinoza and from his um, work previously on Spinoza, the multitude comes to replace the, um, let's call it the orthodox idea of, like, let's say, the proletariat. Um, Negri's still going to call it, a, uh, Negri and Hart are going to call it still a, a class concept, but the idea is that it doesn't simply correspond to sort of the urbanized industrial proletariat um, and expands to include, not only include, but I'll say more about it in a moment, women, ethnic minorities, people from the global south, um, disabled, and so on and so forth, right? So it's no longer a central node, the, pro- the industrial sort of Western proletariat, around which other groups can sort of um, come to form alliances. It's a more open-ended network, a non-singular subject, basically, in empire. And you can see, I think Will's absolutely right here, you can see some hints of that. And I also don't think that's, at least we see it here, I'm not going to go so far as to say that there's a, like a direct link between empire and, you know, a thousand plateaus, but you can certainly see ideas of this already bubbling up in a thousand plateaus, partly through a figure of a rhizome, but also in the later chapter, the more sort of explicitly political chapters, I think the plurality here is is is, is key to thinking through in the legacy of 1977 and so on. Um, what is there a revolutionary subject? Does it even make sense to speak of this in the singular anymore? I think that's the idea. There's actually a very nice section on page 18 where they make the distinction between molar antagonisms and molecular proliferation without invoking um, the sort of go-to examples as to why real existing socialism um, was troublesome. It's interesting that they bring the concept of the individual back into uh, this text. It appears quite often, Mm. um, particularly this little blurb here on molecular proliferation. This could be a whole episode that we do at some point, what is molecular politics and molecular revolution, but this displacement of the revolutionary subject, not as something as as pointed or isolated as the worker per se, 
something like situations that that span various degrees and dimensions the molar like what are what are the kinds of struggles that we're going to fight on the top end you know workplace exploitation over a large region such as uh, a nation for example the the other interesting thing is this idea of molecular prol- proliferation where they say on these isolated instances of struggle into the outside world in which singular struggles irreversibly determine and transform the relations between individuals and collectivities on the one hand uh, material nature and linguistic signs meanings on the other and so and you can tell the influence of Gattari there with the semiotic dimension of things but i just think how it's interesting that they are putting a priority on on subjectivity, subjectivation, and are looking to specific events as as being equally important, I guess you would say, to these sort of molar movements that might involve party representation versus a minor politics, which does not depend on those kinds of structures in order to articulate itself. Yeah, I wonder though if like this is precisely where I start to fall away actually from the text is the is the next move, which is to say that it is in the the molecular proliferation that we find marginality and then through marginality we can then return back to the the interest and will of the majority and it's what i appreciate about this text is is i think it's a fundamentally metaphysically rigorous understanding of the democratic process it's not entirely reliant on sort of a, a parliamentary uh a parliamentary structure to exist prior to the depiction of how interest manifests. But what I find at the end of the day, and maybe we can we can work through this or not, maybe it's just a point of aporia and opposition here, is that this idea that marginality must then be recentered is one that I think can become a problem. This idea that, well, one must listen to this group or that group, because in fact their interests might align with that of the majority, and I find that 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 desire to make a sort of justification for forms of life is one that I think in the end will, and I'll use a, a term that I always hate using, uh, reify some of the elements of let's say the Benthamite depiction. Of political interest. And I wonder if there's a way for us to get around that in how we read this. So just to just restate this for me, I, I'm not too sure what the Benthamite conception is and the like, but is the critique of marginality or how they depict marginality in this text, is it essentially a kind of a an injury to one as an injury to all kind of thing? Or at least on the metaphysical democratic aspect, the liberty of each is the liberty of the of the most marginalized is tied to the liberty of majority because any such power that exists that can produce marginalization will eventually be applied to the majority it has that potential to do so and that's what makes it um, hegemonic so it makes it a governing force and we can see this with the pandemic for example i mean um social distancing has been imposed on the marginalized for far beyond this in terms of what spaces they're at access to what clubs you can go to what spaces you can work in you know just disability access racial discrimination access and so on and so forth. There is that sense of marginalization already at work. And I, I would defend that text so much on that level in so far as ultimately that is what it boils down to. You are as free as, as the most marginalized in so far as that power exists. And there's it, almost not an argument for self-interest in that sense. There is a self-interest in total liberation, even though it's not immediately, um, it would never be immediately 
available to people who don't quite understand the entire integrated world system, which all becomes an entire factory. The same processes are operating at different degrees upon various different kinds of, of body and various different kinds of subject as these productive forces start to constitute them in those ways. I just wonder if their concept of singularity heads off or preempts the sort of worries that you might have about marginality. The notion of singularity is much more expansive than the individual, but it includes the individual. It includes smaller assemblages of individual. So we could talk about marginalized populations, for example. I think that's the long and the short of it. I understand that worry, but I don't see where you think it's imperative within the text, where we must bring them into the I, I think the question, I think for for them, the potentiality that, that and remember, when I say marginality, I don't mean in like the conventional sense of the marginalized in this sort of contemporary political notion of subjugation. But this marginality, and this is on uh, page 43, that every marginality by placing its stakes on itself, and this is where we get the notion of the singularity, is therefore the potential bearer of the needs and desires of the large majority. And it's this concept of bearing of bearing the the desires like the 17th century soldier that bears the totality of the social realm that they that they are beneath even in their presence as just one you know fusilier right that i think is not necessarily a large ascendance away from the very kinds of social formations that let's say the most basic forms of liberal governmentality are predicated on the way that i i read that is and and i'm not saying you're wrong that that could be like a, a good criticism of that. But the way that I see it is that sometimes the marginal, it's on page 43, you said? I, w- I just want to go to that section. Every marginality by placing its stakes on itself is therefore the potential bearer of the needs and desires of the large majority. So the way that I heard that the, when you read it just now is that, that there's a way in which individuals, um, marginal groups, and so on and so forth, can be articulations maybe of larger repressed desires that that don't poke through perhaps and that these are flashpoints of the ways that maybe society at large is is and can develop uh, i hate to use the word representative of a, of a kind of desire but i like the idea of there being a flashpoint where a certain locality or a marginality might be a, a sort of a crack in the machine where um you know, certain revolutionary potential kind of bursts through the seams. Will's right to flag that passage, actually, because I think that's either an undeveloped idea or an underdeveloped idea or highly imprecise language, because bearer sort of suggests a sort of, um, you know, a mode of political representation, right? Um, the idea of a figure which actually represents, you know, a broader, more general sort of thing. Um, I don't think that's what they're after. There's at least four or five passages in this book where they openly and explicitly attack the idea of political representation um, as essentially obscuring a more basic democratic process, which I think is not... Democracy for them, or at least, at least for Negri, is non, non-identical with sort of liberal or bourgeois documentary. I guess the other thing I wanted to say, though, is that I think this is part of a wider move that gets made maybe a little bit later by other authors. For example, in the work of the post-Marxist authors, um, Ernesto Leclerc and Chantal Mouffe, the idea is to displace the centrality of the 
um, traditional Marxist category of the urban industrial proletariat, which is, at least on one reading, by definition, the, the revolutionary subject because of its relation to um, means of relation to production, right? So I think what you could see this as is an attempt to think through the idea that there is no determinism at work here, where we know in advance which one of these groups will, it will be, brackets, obviously, it's the, the proletariat, right? Where perhaps what they're trying to say is that, and again, probably in an unclear language, is that there's no reason to assume from the start that it would be any particular group. And in fact, we don't know until it happens. What, where, um, uh, where Craig said, as, as Craig said, sort of the, the flashpoint uh, really is. And in that moment, perhaps new alliances are formed as a sort of subtitle or title of this book suggests. And, and I think it's worth mentioning, they, they do give an example right after they say before 68, the problem of reproduction remained marginal in relation to production. The women's movement has made it central. And I think what's important about that example is the way that we have thought about production has, in, and reproduction in this case, it has destabilized the image of the worker in the sense as the as the font of production in society. And I think it does so in a way that forces us to reevaluate just the question of production in general. So in that sense, like, I, I mean, I'm trying to read them charitably here, but, oh, Will, go ahead. Yeah, but that's that's part of the problem to me. It's like, oh no, I participate in this apparatus too. To me, the necessity to bear that symbol is precisely the problem. And I, I worry that at the at the end of sort of this this long winding road of of global citizenship what we find is to produce is to be worthy of it and that's my fear is that it always it always has to indicate that one has to prove a particular relationship to productivity even if it just or production even if it is just forcing a reevaluation of the lens that we use to an- analyze it as let's say the left or as owners of means of production. To me, it is precisely that necessity to make that point or to look to those kinds of dispositions that I actually think are just embedded in other forms of governmentality and other forms of understanding the social. Is your word to some extent, you know, where they say communism is a call to life in the phrase of, you know, reevaluating, reformulating production is that they end up conflating life with production? With its content, with, with with the content of life, which is to be a producer in this socialized world capitalism, which is the material for them is the material source of things, but rather it it's focused too much on the content of life rather than the form of it as another pole to that dialectic. Like, of, of course, that's of course that's where I'm headed. Where like the final opposition is between the expansion yeah. of civil society, which is predicated on production, and the proliferation of forms of life, and sort of the tacit acceptance of civil war that comes with that. Like I, I think that the the citizens' wage is is to me the great admission of Hart and Negri about the citizens' relationship to production. It is the assumption that citizenship is predicated on a relation to to non material labor productivity or to um, contemporary forms of production that are not inside the factory. That I think show sort of the that the point of production is not like necessarily and this is to take a term from uh jason e smith who writes about it's not a part of a de- like production doesn't exist at a determined site but that there is in fact new forms of unproductive labor that that now indicate that we need this citizen's wage and for me like i i just worry that 
In fact, a lot of the developments that we see in Negri actually sit in their nascent form here. And it's not necessarily some sort of development after the multitude. But look, this is its own episode. This is its own space of combat. But that's that's just how I feel. So we are just about coming up on the hour here. And of course, we barely scratched the surface of this text, but maybe now's a good time to talk about final thoughts. And who would like to go first on that? Okay, as the person with the most, with the, well, the least developed uh, uh, reading of both Negri, Guattari, and also Hart, uh, I'll, I guess I'll go first. I mean, I really enjoyed this text. I liked how it essentially woke up maybe a little too late to the reality of global capital as of the decentralization or the decentering of the worker in ways that were at best implicit in terms of how the worker became globally produced. I like the reintroduction of subjectivity in it and the use of an individual as a social category that is in ways always beyond itself and has capacity beyond itself. It's focus on production very good, very, very materialist, if let's just use the magic word. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is there has to be a, a room for waste, room for non-productivity, but a little bit, a bit of a tie here. Let's just see what doesn't get captured in it. But I think the text is brilliant in terms of its fundamental openness, in terms of it, it's, it, is, it is a kind of refusal to play the old game of leftist politics or leftist political analysis as it has hitherto come about. Between the very representative forces of the of the communist parties, and I guess in a very arguably ultra way, you know, the, neither east nor west, but we're thinking of north and south because this is where you know the proxy wars. This is where the new fronts of production. This is where the coups are happening. And I think at that time, writing from prison, uh, Negri was definitely a man of the world. I mean, I guess I'll go because then we can let Matt close because th- this is the thing where he he has, I think, the the most significant handle on it. <laughs> Obviously, I'm critical of the work a little bit, but what I really do appreciate is the understanding that fundamental opposition can't just be, and I'm going to use the word again, predicated on a class identity that already from the get-go reinforces and strengthens a, a power relation, right? That one has to take up take up the the subjectivity handed to them as a proletarian laborer. But in fact, opposition to to work on command, in fact, can have an expression of a will that goes beyond just the old form of um, class relations as it had existed in Marxist analysis in the early 20th century. So I think what there is in this text, and I think what there is in a lot of Negri's work, is both this openness, right? This this desire not to just concede everything, <laughs> which I think a lot, of, a lot of leftists do, especially like some that I might find myself let's say, more sympathetic to, tend to just concede everything. And uh, Negri is not willing to do that. He's never been willing to do that. So in a certain sense, there is a sort of an openness that isn't just like a metaphysical one, but it actually an, ar- an argumentational one, one that regards the future in a very important way. Whereas we see Edelman and so many others saying that, in fact, what we need to do is radically foreclose on this future. Negri is not willing to do that. So for that reason, I think, I think, he's a necessary voice and that he should be able to leave Italy. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of strange uh, that, that that's, that's still a, uh, a, an issue. But anyway, yeah. I would say the big takeaway for me from this text is, is this idea of the connection between the validation of singularities and refusal. I think that's something that 
we need to lock into in our theorization of anti-work and, and so forth. Not to say that it hasn't. I mean, of course, the work of Negri and Gattari is present in a lot of those authors. But it's worth reading this one little section here that actually appears in the, in the first chapter of the book, where they say, from this perspective, communism is the establishment of communal lifestyle in which individuality is recognized and truly liberated, not merely opposed to the collective. That's the most important lesson. The construction of healthy communities begins and ends with unique personalities that the collective potential is realized only when the singular is free. This insight is fundamental to the liberation of work. Work as exploitation has completed its development of the general, the mass, the production line. What is now possible is to tap into the potential of the individual creative energies. Now, the caveat that goes with this, some of the examples that they give in the ways in which we, we become free in this new world of work have already been co-opted by capitalism and its recuperative mechanism. The challenge is, how do we get that refusal piece into the praxis, right? Not only at the level of unions. How does that happen at the individual level and how is that validated when it's just one person or when it's two people or when it's people of a certain community or, or what have you? And so I, I think any further development of, of this line of thinking begins from there. That's, that's the sort of springboard that we're left with here. But Matt, go ahead. Given I'm supposedly like a resident Negri defender. He's logged on. It's fitting, I guess. Um, I still really like this text. Um, I think it's, it's, I think it stands by itself as a pretty good text. There are some under, underdeveloped ideas here, particularly the idea of this sort of north-south axis in the, in this book, which, um, they, they say, I think Negri says in particular, um, in the, 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 the postscript written a few years later, like they were way too optimistic about what was going on there, uh, which I suspect is probably why one reason, at least one reason why he wrote um, Empire is to try and get a, a more sophisticated understanding of the way that capital works globally. Um, but I think there's a lot here and a lot of it probably still applies. I mean, the way that Negri deploys ideas, I think of, of the formal and real subsumption, the transition from um, simply the imposition of a wage towards a, real restructuring of the entire society and of society in order to um, fit the needs of capital. I think that still remains a very important idea. And I think you can see all sorts of connections with the collaborative work of Dolores and Guattari in trying to think through a idea of a revolutionary anti-capitalist politics, which neither seeks state power and therefore, in a, in a sense, uh, re-engages either the same or a new war machine. And also without submitting to the already, they think, out, outdated ideas of uh, the communist political parties they are used to, which themselves, I, I think they say a number of times, reproduce the exact same logic of both capital and the state they want to, to, to escape. I think they're trying to navigate this question and they're pulling in slightly different directions. They do seem to be at odds at certain points in this text. There's a, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, there's an explicit rejection of both Leninism and anarchism. And I wonder where each of those, where Negri and Gotari actually fall on that. But yeah, I, th I think it's a good text. But I mean, it's interesting to read between A Thousand Plateaus and uh, some of Hart and Negri's uh, later work, because they probably developed some of these ideas a bit further. But I like it. I think it's a good, good piece of work. And that's Acid Horizon, the anti-work podcast, where we're editing and recording constantly. Take care, everyone. It is called the coming insurrection.
starting is a war. 